The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Memphis and Shelby County's youth justice system has made a lot of headlines over the last few years. Recently, the coverage has been about Shelby County's plan to convert a shuttered detention facility, once known as Shelby Training Center, and use it to detain children involved in the justice system. Despite clear evidence that detention negatively impacts outcomes, Shelby County continues to detain children much more frequently than other jurisdictions. We also treat children as adults much more often. Our youth and criminal justice leadership regularly default to worn-out narratives and disproven policies to defend these practices. But there are better ways to solve these problems, and Liz Ryan is very familiar with those solutions. She's our guest today. Liz is a youth justice expert who leads state and local advocacy campaigns as president and CEO of Youth First, an organization fighting to end youth incarceration by closing prisons, investing in alternatives, educating people on the harms of incarcerating children, and changing the national narrative on juvenile justice from one that's punitive to one that is rehabilitative. She's also founded the Campaign for Youth Justice, another national group working to end the practice of punishing children as adults. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, just to get get us started, tell us what made you interested in fighting for the rights of incarcerated kids. What's the story behind that? Well, thank you, Josh, for having me on. Uh, you know, my first job was working with kids when I was a teenager myself. I was a swim coach and instructor at my local YMCA, uh, so I just love young people. And uh, later on, I worked at the Children's Defense Fund in the 1990s. Um, and there I worked on trying to stop S-10, which was the Violent Youth Predator Act, a draconian piece of legislation that would have tied federal money or accessing federal money to trying more kids as adults in the states. And so I started working on that, and, and I've continued to work on that issue ever since. I, it's just something that I feel very strongly about. I feel that kids are not being treated equitably by the justice system and um, – so for the past 22 years, this is what I've been focused on. Yeah, yeah. And we, we've had several guests on this uh, show, who, and we've talked about youth justice and some of the trends. And, and one of the, the, you know, the most common conversations we have when we talk about youth justice is how children are different. Um, mm-hmm. We're learning more every day about development and about uh, the brain and, and the, the science behind why children are different. So um, with that in mind, and, and obviously you can educate us as much or as little as you want on that, uh, I think that it's pretty, pretty understandable that children are different. So why is it, is it important to treat them differently from adults uh, when they come into contact with the justice system? We know that young people are still developing, right? That they're, they're still growing, they're still maturing. And, and public opinion actually supports this. You know, public opinion, uh, people believe that young people should be given a second chance because they're capable of change. 
um, later on when they get older, that's that's less the case. That doesn't mean that <laughs> um, we should treat people harshly at any age, but especially for children, because they are still developing and they are capable of change, the policies ought to reflect that. And so what harm what harm comes when we don't do that? What what why should we avoid it? Well, we should avoid it because we, you know, this country uh, treats children very, very harshly. We lead the world in incarcerating young people. We are the only country in the world that routinely uh, prosecutes kids in adult criminal court, places them in adult jails and prisons, and sentences 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 them to die in prison. Uh, we we're the only country in the world that does all that, and. Uh, we're also the only country in the world that never signed on to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and I think those two things are related. Um, so when we don't treat children like children, we increase the likelihood that they're going to end up in the adult criminal justice system, and they go you know, the fast track by prosecution in adult criminal court, or they go the slower track, which is through the back end of the juvenile justice system, where they're placed in youth prisons and they're more uh, likely to end up in the adult system if they've been in the back end of the juvenile justice system. Yeah. Tell me more about that agreement real quick. The The agreement? International uh, Oh, it's called the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Yeah. And it's an international human rights uh, convention uh, that's about 30 years old. Um, And every country in the world, except for the United States, has signed on to that. And what we see in the Convention on the Rights of the Child are rights that children have uh, on a variety of fronts, including on the justice system. And what's interesting about that is when you talk to people in other countries, that's the framework that they approach the justice system with, is the Convention on the Rights of the Child. They match up the convention with how they're doing, and they track their progress toward meeting the convention's goals, things like incarceration or even out-of-home placement should be a last resort for children. Uh, and the, the along with the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, the United Nations has a framework uh, that, you know, they use the Convention on the Rights of the Child framework, but they also recently issued a global study on children deprived of liberty. And again, the United States there, you know, fares the worst wow. in the world on this issue. Yeah. Um, I know in the adult system, Liz, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with some of the statistics about incarceration rates and how they compare across the country. And um, as you would expect, and I'm sure not surprised to learn, you know, former slave states, states in the South are um, have the worst incarceration rates, the highest incarceration rates, the most disproportionate uh, treatment of brown and black people. I presume that is the same thing when it comes to youth justice systems. Can you tell us the landscape there? Yeah, it's very similar. I, um, I think that states are um, treating young people much more harshly, much more punitively, uh, particularly young people of color. Um, when you look at uh, the rates of incarceration of young people of color, um, they're, they're three, four, five times more likely to be incarcerated depending on their race and ethnicity. And in some states, uh, they're dramatically more likely to be incarcerated than than white youth, even when charged with similar offenses. So what we see here is not that young people of color commit more crime than white youth. They do not. Um, young people commit crimes at roughly the same rates, according to the research. And we know from the research that most kids engage in delinquent behavior during their teenage years, and most kids age out of it. So what's happening in our system is we have a very racially disparate 
juvenile injustice system, or as some call it, the Jim Crow juvenile justice system. Um, and I would say one, one interesting factoid is that um, after um, 1865, there was a group called the Black Child Savers that worked to try to ensure that youth of color, particularly African-American youth in the South, uh, would have access to rehabilitative treatment and services in the juvenile justice system instead of being tried in adult criminal court where they were faced with chain gangs and all kinds of uh, very, very harsh, harsh punishment. And that was in the 19th um, century. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is, you know, during the time that the Black Child Savers did this work, they worked to get more kids into the juvenile justice system. And as you see today, we, ha we still have far too many kids being exposed to the dangers of the adult criminal justice system, yeah, particularly yeah. in the South. Yeah, and I, and I obviously I have some statistics on that, and, and listeners to this podcast and followers of Just City will know that recently in the news, the, the 2019 uh, transfer numbers for Memphis and Shelby County were, were pretty egregious, and we, we increased the number of kids we transferred. We transferred 90 children last year, um, and by the counts that we have, none of them were white. All of them were black and brown children, and um, at the same time up the road in, in Nashville, uh, they transferred 16. I believe all of those children were also children of color, but uh, very, very different systems. And um, I, I, I guess I'd like your comment on that. I know you haven't done a lot of work in Tennessee, and so you can't speak to the specifics that may result in that. But what does that say to you? I mean, what that says to me is that young people of color are not being given a second chance in the juvenile court system that if they're being transferred to adult criminal court, that shows that judges and other policymakers in Memphis and Shelby County um, are not treating those children as children. Um, and if you're going to treat a, a kid as a kid, you would never send them to adult criminal court, ever. Um, and if we look at, you know, we should be looking at the kid, not the offense. Because if we believe that ki the kids are capable of change, if we look at the, what the research shows about um, kids being able to uh, bounce back from making mistakes, then we should be treating kids in the juvenile justice system rather than the adult criminal justice system. What's uh, what's the most widely held misconception about a child who's charged with a with an offense, um, and and how do you combat that misconception as an organization, as a person, as an advocate? I mean, I, I think that the most common misperception is that some kids are not worthy of rehabilitation in the juvenile justice system. That some kids are not allowed to be kids, and those kids are black and brown kids. Uh, and what we know, again, from the research, that most kids engage in delinquent behavior during their teenage years. It's just that our country and policymakers, particularly justice system practitioners, treat some kids uh, as if they were adults, and they don't allow them to have a childhood. And that's what, what I'm working to change, and, and many people across the country are working to change. In the communities that you work in, and the states and local um, systems, who is typically leading uh, these strategies for reform and for change for the better? I mean, what I've seen across the country, and it's changed over the years, is you know there's a, there's a small group of very, very dedicated uh, juvenile defense attorneys around the country who have worked tirelessly for, for decades uh, they're the, they're the people who represent kids in juvenile court every day. They tirelessly 
push to ensure that kids are not placed in incarceration settings and that they access opportunities, services, and programs in their communities. Um, and along with those attorneys uh, pushing for that, there have been a, been a number of attorneys who've also pushed for litigation on the treatment of kids by the system uh, is to ensure more fair, equitable, and humane treatment. And more recent years, what we've seen is the growth of uh, advocacy in the youth justice space, people who are doing policy work at the state level, uh, young people who are directly impacted, their families and communities, organizing efforts to not only um, get rid of the worst aspects of the system, like transfer to adult court, like incarcerating youth, but to shift the resources away from those kinds of harsh treatments and towards investing in youth in their communities. And so it's been a real exciting change to see that happen. We actually re uh, released a report uh, several years ago called Breaking Down the Walls, where we highlighted uh, stories of these changes across the country, California, Texas, uh, New York, D.C., Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, um, showing what can happen when people who are directly affected by this organize for change and when they're supported by allies and lawyers and other advocates who work with young people, there can be uh, a real prospect of change and a real investment for young people. Yeah, yeah. You, you've said a few things uh, through the interview. In particular, you've said, you know, look at the kid, not the offense. And, and you've talked about second chances a lot. And, and the response that we get quite often in this community from our court when we when we push back on these transfer rates and these uh, and these policies and decisions that are not giving kids second chances and are definitely responding to offenses, which can at times be scary. I mean, that is not untrue that, uh, you know, especially when guns are involved, especially when there's violence. And the judge will often say, um, uh, what what should I do with a child who uh, puts a gun in someone's face, or much worse, you know, hurts someone with a weapon or otherwise? Um, give us an ex and, and one thing I think as an advocate, I'll confess we don't always do well in this community is give them the alternative. And so I ask you, an expert who has seen those alternatives put into place, what is the alternative when uh, when you have children who are admittedly involved in in dangerous, reckless behavior uh, that frightens the community, rightfully so. There are alternatives to trying kids in adult court and to placing kids in into incarceration. Um, those are There are a lot of programs around the country that we've seen work really well. A program like Youth Advocate Program, which has been around for more than 40 years. It's called YAP. And I think it's one of the best kept secrets in juvenile justice. Um, they do sort of very intensive wraparound services for kids who are at, at high risk of reoffending, who committed the most serious offenses, and who may have high needs. And they've had a very effective success rate working with those young people because their model really relies on the things that show uh, the most promise, right? That young people grow and thrive when they're surrounded by caring adults, that young people need support in terms of access and guidance, in terms of accessing um, educational opportunities uh, and employment opportunities, and also that uh, not giving up on young people. I mean, YAP has a philosophy of um, uh, they, don't, they don't reject any kid that comes to them. They don't eject any kid that comes to them. They keep working with those young people. Um, and they've had a very high success rate. We've also seen some other programs like Credible Messenger Mentoring, which is another uh, uh, model that's similar to the YAP model, which is being um, 
uh, utilized in a number of states, including New York. Um, there's programs like uh, restorative justice that also really focus on uh, healing and accountability at the same time. You know, oftentimes when we just uh, take a young person who's committed a serious offense and we, we uh, put them in a, a youth prison or we send them to adult criminal court for even harsher consequences, um, that young person is may not be um, taking the steps to really address the harm that they've caused, right? And we know from talking to victims of crime that when what they want is they want the harm to be addressed and they want that young person to never do it again, right? And right, so exactly. things like restorative justice, uh, a group called Common Justice in New York has really been embarking on that. And there are other, other organizations around the country like Impact Justice that have been working on that. And then I would mention, you know, that programs like the Young Women's Freedom Center in California, where they work directly, it's, it was started by young women who were in the justice system. And it's, a, it's an effort that is both advocacy, but also direct service. You know, they address the needs of young women who are in the justice system. Sometimes those are things that propel a young woman into the justice system in the first place, right? If they're engaging in um, uh, survival behavior, that, that sends them into the justice system. Uh, so we there are a lot of examples. I mean, to me, the issue is not whether or not um, these examples exist, because they definitely do. It's a question of political will, right? Do judges and prosecutors and policymakers have the political will to invest in what we know works? Correct. Or are they just going to continue to uh, invest in the strategies that produce the worst outcomes, That's right. like trying and, kids as adults? And that is exactly the decision that they've made here. And obviously, in my opinion, <laughs> there, there goes the uh, the balanced <laughs> host <laughs> for this podcast. But I don't think anyone was pretending that I was balanced on this issue. Um, one of the other refrains that we get from our leadership um, is about mentoring. It's a very common refrain. You need to be involved in this with us. We can't do this alone, they'll say. And and there are these all calls that, you know, may feature athletes or other, you know, high profile members of the community recruiting people to recruit. What's the difference between that and credible messenger mentoring? And, and why uh, is that important to, to call it credible messenger mentoring? So, you know, when you hear about just sort of mentoring, you think of, uh, someone in the community who uh, meets with a young person once a month and has dinner with them or goes to their baseball game or sports activity or some other activity. And that person's a volunteer. Um, they may not come from the same community as the young person. They may not be the same race, ethnicity, or even gender as that young person. And um, those kinds of programs are out there and they exist. And I, I think that they're um, uh, successful in many ways. Uh, but the difference with credible messenger mentoring is that you have people who walked in the shoes of where these young people are, right? These are people who are from the communities that are most affected by incarceration. They've been incarcerated themselves. They've navigated out of the justice system, and uh, they've been where those young people have been. So they are, they are people that the young people really um, look up to and would listen to, right? It's not, it's not, you know, they understand what that young person's dealing with, um, but that young person also can hear them in a different way than they may they may hear a different type of mentor. You know, they may they may see a credible messenger mentor as someone who uh, as is more more um, believable to them because 
that person's been where that young person's been. And we've seen very, very high success rates with this. I mean, the Arches mentoring program in New York City has incredibly high success rates with credible messenger mentoring. And it's a, it's a program and a, a strategy that uh, has really been uh, of, of big interest to people. There's actually a credible messenger justice center in New York City that uh, jurisdictions around the country have been sending representatives to to get more information about how that works. And so um, I know YAP uses this model as well, where they hire people who are from the community, who've, who've been where the young people have been. Uh, so it, 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 it's a strategy for really allowing that young person to, to be connected to a caring adult who not only has skills and supports that they can offer, but has been where that young person has been and is from the same community. Right, right. I want to shift to talk about an issue that's been uh, in the headlines around here quite a bit uh, lately, and that is uh, the talk that Shelby County is in need of a new detention facility for its youth. Um, I know that's something that you've been involved in in other parts of the country. Walk us through the steps a community should take before it even it even says that, that yes, we need a new facility. How should we assess the current uh, facility? Uh, and what should go into that assessment? What's that process look like? And what are the considerations, the priorities? I mean, the first step is, is, I mean, in this environment right now, we've had uh, more than a 50% drop in youth incarceration across the country, every single state, uh, dramatically uh, reducing the use of detention and, and incarceration, that, that nobody should be building anything in this environment, right? Like, why are we building something when youth incarceration, youth detention is going down? That makes no sense, right? That's the first thing. Second thing is, um, you know, when architects approach whether or not to build a new building, um, they actually believe that you should um, take many steps before you would ever even consider doing that. So it makes sense from from both a um, uh, a data standpoint and also from a an environmental standpoint um, that the, the building something it just does not make sense right now in this environment. I would I would say that a system really needs to look at who are we. In, detaining and incarcerating and why. They need to take a step back and look at their data, look at the decisions that they're making around this, um, because oftentimes what they'll find is what I've seen in most states, which is that a large number of kids are are being um, uh, detained for, uh, for reasons other than public safety, that uh, they may be detained because they, um, a parent wasn't home, when when the young person was arrested, so they're taken to the detention center, right? So they really need to look at why they're detaining kids and why they're confining kids and consider uh, what it would mean to change some of those policies. They should look at changing that first before they even ever consider building something or building something new. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll just, let me just add one more sure, thing sure. is that, you know, in states across the country, they're actually closing facilities. They're closing detention facilities, San Francisco, closing their juvenile hall, uh, Seattle, you know, uh, they have a zero youth incarceration, um, uh, program that they're, they're implementing, right? Um, we've had states across the country, Virginia, Connecticut, Kansas, you know, in all regions closing detention and correctional facilities. Uh, so, so Tennessee is, 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 is going against, uh, the trend by considering opening uh, a new facility. And, um, even if it's, you know, it sounds like it may not even be building a new facility, it may just be 
sort of repurposing an already existing facility. Um, again, it's something that um, they should really, before they take any steps in that direction, they need to look at what's happening with the system. Yeah, and then that was my follow-up because, I mean, I think what the leadership here, the people who are exploring this option would say, well, we're not. You know, we we have a really, really old facility that doesn't have – um, programming a space and it doesn't have light and it's not designed for the purpose that it's being used and it's it's outlived its its useful life as a building and we are looking at a building that was designed for uh, more for training and education also for detention um, how do you respond to that and I think the important part to, to note about that is that the the place where they're looking it has the capacity for 200 uh, children and our current population is, is something like 100 and, and maybe 30 or 20. yeah I mean first of all they shouldn't be expanding the number of beds that they have in this environment when detention and incarceration have been going down across the country in every single state they should not be expanding beds first of all period second is that it's not just about, you know, it, it's interesting. They, they, they are right to be concerned about the physical conditions of a detention facility. That's the, that is the right thing. They should be concerned about that. Placing children in a place where there's limited light, limited air, limited space, uh, horrific conditions that they wouldn't want their own child to be placed in. They should never place children in a place like that. They should take this opportunity to rethink detention altogether. Why are we detaining these kids in the first place? How many of them could actually be safely served in the community? Are they looking at uh, the array of detention alternatives, right? There's a whole array of detention alternatives that the NE Casey Foundation uh, has produced and put out there over the last 30 years. And those are, those are strategies that many, many jurisdictions have been adopting across the country. And that's something that Shelby County really ought to look at before they ever think about investing in expanding beds or using another space. And Casey has has been in, in Shelby County. I'll, I'll say that for the listeners. And um, we have had that conversation, and it's been ongoing for the better part of a decade. Yeah. And, and here we are. Um, well, I want to get closer to the finish here, but, I mean, tell us what that looks like. Is there a rewarding experience or example of, of a community? I mean, you gave you a list of places that are closing, and maybe that's one of, maybe that's the example you'll give, but what, what can happen? What's possible? Give us a, a story or an example of, of what we can accomplish as communities when we do rethink uh, detention. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example, another example in the South. Um, in Virginia, uh, a group of very dedicated uh, advocates, activists, young people who've been directly impacted, their families and communities formed a campaign called Rise for Youth. And that campaign uh, has been pushing for ending the incarceration of young people ac across Virginia. And they were able to get one of two facilities closed, a very large youth prison that was founded in the 1800s, uh, shortly after the, the end of the Civil War. And that institution uh, is now closed and the resources that went into that institution in, in the millions of dollars uh, was changed, was redirected in the budget to community-based programs, services, and opportunities for young people. So the Department of Juvenile Justice in that state put those resources on the ground into communities that are most affected by incarceration to provide an array of supports and services for young people. And we've seen incarceration rates continue to go down in the state. We've seen um, the number of kids accessing these services go up. 
I mean, it's been a win-win for everyone. Now there's still more work to be done there. <laughs> you know, it's, they're oh, not done always. yet. They're working to close another facility and they're working to push those resources into communities. But what I'm saying is that when the political dynamic is changed, where communities most affected are building power and showing policymakers, no, we want our kids. We don't want these kids ending up in the justice system in this way. That can change. Well, that's uh, an excellent uh, place to stop, I think. Liz, I, I really, really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us, and I hope that uh, the folks who listen to this from, from this community will uh, take your words to heart. Uh, I think a lot of things are possible here, and I really appreciate you walking us through uh, what that can look like and, and what we should be thinking. Josh, thank you so much for having me on, and we're happy to share what we've learned um, and, and the expertise across the country on these issues. Our website is nokidsinprison.org. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. That was Liz Ryan, director of Youth First. I really hope you'll check out their website, nokidsinprison.org. They're proving that there's a much better way to do youth justice than the way it is done in Shelby County. We'd be wise to study their work. As always, thanks to Gil Worth and the OAM Network for hosting us and providing first-class podcast support. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com. We're a little misty-eyed in here today. This is the last podcast being recorded in the podcast studio of the central atrium at crosstown concourse but never fear the oem network is headed for some brand new space across the street on cleveland and we'll be recording from there soon thanks as always to jeff hewlett for a brand new version of our theme song she got gone check out jeff on spotify his newest album is called around these parts Special thanks this episode to Ethan Heilig, a Rhodes College junior and Just City student worker, for a ton of help producing this episode. He's been supporting our work on this issue with some excellent research. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you please give us a rating, please leave us a review. It will help us out a lot. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.